0: Advent season, I have offered a word or a message, a brief message, brief, on each word of the season. So the first Sunday of Advent is hope, the second is peace, the third is joy, and this fourth one is love. How do you talk about love and it not seem trite, shallow, or too sentimental? I've had that feeling actually with every word that I've talked about this season, hope, peace, joy, but love has proved the most difficult. As I sat quietly and tried to take in the word love to see what might come to me, I had the sensation of being pulled into goodness. It was almost when I let myself Free of thinking about all the other things. It was almost a physical sensation, like my chest was a magnetic force being pulled into goodness. And then I thought, well, that's the easy part of love. And love is not always easy. So I sat with that a little bit more and I began to see all the times that love is more of a push, sometimes more like a shove. All the times we do the things that we do not want to do because of love, all the things that we do that are aggravating and difficult to do, but the right thing to do because of love. For me, those things are usually motivated by the way of Jesus, which is the most countercultural way there is, because his way is grounded and infused with love, which always includes the most unlovely. And love is inclusive, welcoming, affirming. That is who God is and what God does. In most every wedding ceremony that Russ and I perform, we share the homily portion of the wedding. Russ usually talks about the big picture marriage ideas, and I usually take the personalized portion. I'm sure you're shocked by that division of labor. The exchange usually that we make about mid-homily, goes like this. Russ says, as one poet puts it, I fantasized two gloriously in love people on a Harlequin, Harlequin cover. Marriage was a list of beforehand things, dress, invitations, cake, flowers, everything ticking off perfectly. Then I made it to the real thing." Both of us bending against the wind that gave my wedding veil no peace. Holding hard to each other. Then Russ says to the couple, welcome to the real thing. Nothing in this world is more joyous and perhaps perhaps nothing is more difficult. Marriage, he says, is a push. Then I say, and a pull. A give and a take. Love is so much more than romantic love, marriage love. But that whole push and pull image speaks to me of the kind of love that is Advent love. Every year, we celebrate a baby being born into this complex, difficult, chaotic world. That baby was pushed and pulled into this world to tell us, to teach us, to embody for us what love looks like and how love acts. When we are pulled into love, which is just another name for God, fear subsides. When we are pushed into love, shoved into God, we are liberated, set free, forgiven, and loved unconditionally to allow the way of Jesus to be born again into this world. That would be the real miracle, wouldn't it? For love to be born again this Christmas in us, in you, in me. For love to be born again through us, pushed and pulled into this complex, difficult, chaotic world. Love came down at Christmas. May it be so again this year, in you.
1: Thanks to all our musicians today, our friends from the Charlotte Pride Band who have joined us for this special service. Amy and I don't always preach our sermons for each other, but in these series, when we've been both speaking on the same Sunday morning, we've tried to share a little bit to see if we were coordinating together. So, yesterday morning, as we often do on Saturdays, we got up and went to our favorite coffee shop. And when I got through, when we both got through and I read to her my sermon, she said, I hope they're going to be awake in the morning. That's a lot. And I said, they'll be awake. This is, you know, this is the cream of the crop. These are the faithful. They'll be here on Christmas Eve morning. Um, but let me ask you to stay awake until I get to the end, okay? We need to cover a 1,000 years of biblical history and scripture interpretation before I get to the point, okay? 1,000 years, okay? Here we go. Seven. I want to do this. Because our text for today that I'm going to read in, uh, in the sermon, our text for today has become really important for Christians as we interpret the Christian story. So here's the context of that uh, phrase, the virgin shall conceive. Seven centuries before Christ, Assyria was the dominant regional power. The Assyrian king and his armies controlled many of the surrounding nations including Syria and Israel. Now you remember after Solomon the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom including Jerusalem was Judah. The kings of Syria and Israel had decided that they would break away from Assyrian control but they needed greater strength to fight the Assyrian power. So King Pekah. And King Rezin, whose names are found in your Bible, joined together to invade Judah, hoping to bring King Ahaz into their rebellion against Assyria. As this Syro-Ephraimitic war progresses, King Ahaz is losing ground, losing troops, and he fears losing Jerusalem, so he seeks the advice of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah served in the temple of Jerusalem like an official state-sponsored pastor. And in that capacity, he also advised Judah's kings. Think of Billy Graham at the White House. In short, Isaiah tells Ahaz not to worry. He assures the king he will not be defeated by this Syrian-Israelite coalition despite the losses he is currently facing. To prove his prophecy is correct, Isaiah tells Ahaz, just ask God for a sign. And that's where we pick up the text for today. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Here then, O house of Israel, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Even though you're not asking for it, you're not looking for it, the Lord will give you a sign. Look, right there. The young woman is with child, and she shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. Do not worry. You understand? Isaiah is trying to prove the truth of this prophecy that Ahaz will not be defeated by, this, by Syria and Israel, and when Ahaz will not ask for a sign, God gives it anyway. Isaiah says to him, it's plain as day, Ahaz, look, right there, going right there. Maybe uh, Isaiah is pointing out the window of the royal palace to a young woman who's passing by, a young woman who is obviously pregnant. And he says to Ahaz, before that woman right there, before her child is old enough to know right from wrong, and how old does a child need to be to know right from wrong, maybe beginning four or five years of age, before that child knows right from wrong, this threat of Syria and Israel will be gone. And it was. Assyria destroyed Israel, uh, uh, ending the threat to Ahaz in the year 720. Now for some biblical interpretation, about a hundred years later, after this event, when an editor was putting together the book we call Isaiah, putting it together as a single book, he interpreted the Ahaz story with theological emphasis because unfaithful Ahaz had not listened to Isaiah the prophet. Instead of not worrying, he had gone to the Assyrian king asking the Assyrian king for help against Syria and Israel. He had not trusted the word of the prophet. He had not trusted God. So a hundred years after the event, Isaiah's editor wrote this down as a prophecy against Ahaz, who had not trusted God. And then... 300 years later i told you we're going a thousand years okay 300 years later alexander the great conquered ancient israel and in that influence greek became the predominant language so all the books that we call the old testament were translated from hebrew into greek and in that translation from hebrew to greek the word alma A Hebrew word that means young woman. Look, the young woman, the Alma, is with child. In the translation from Hebrew to Greek, the translators use the word Parthenos, which carries an explicit connotation of sexual virginity, which is not shared in the original Hebrew word Alma. Another 300 years later, okay, now we're... Now we're at the time of Jesus, after the time of Jesus. When a writer called Matthew wrote his gospel, he used the event of Ahaz 700 years before Jesus, which was found in the prophecy of Isaiah 600 years before Jesus, which was translated into Greek, that young woman becoming a virgin, 300 years before Jesus. And Matthew, writing 50 years after Jesus, incorporates this prophecy. A thousand years in the making, he incorporates this prophecy into his story. Now, our oldest gospel is Mark, and the oldest gospel has no birth story of Jesus at all. Neither does the gospel of John. Luke introduces us to Joseph and Mary, Joseph who traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but he says he went to, with Mary to be registered to Mary to whom he was engaged and who is expecting a child. That's all he says of Mary. Only with Matthew do we first hear of a virgin birth. There is an event, and a hundred years later, there's an interpretation of that event, and three hundred years later, there's a translation of the interpretation of that event, that event, and three hundred more years later, there's another interpretation of the interpretation of the translation of that event. Is this confusing enough for you? It's how the Bible came to be. You need to understand that. It's how the Bible came to be. And I am not casting aspersions on the Bible. I love the Bible. This is no skeptic's rejection of Scripture. The story as we have received it is no fairy tale. It's reality. But it's just how human beings hear. It's how we assimilate. It is how we receive stories and derive truth from those stories in our own time, in our own context. We see what we need to see. We see what's available for us to see. We need signs, and God always gives them signs. Bill Ingvold, from the Sublime to the Ridiculous, I'm moving here. Bill Ingvold, part of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, has made a mint of laughing at stupid people. Or should I say laughing at regular people who sometimes do stupid things. He says, we are so dumb, sometimes we just need a sign to hang around our neck that says, I'm stupid. In one of the many episodes that has made him rich, he explains, here's your sign. He says, once he was making a trip for one of his comedy gigs, and he flew into a small little rural area on a puddle jumper airplane, he says, you cannot make this stuff up. I promise you, we landed in that little airport, and on the runway, the airplane hit a deer. It killed the deer and wrecked the engine. When he finally got off the plane and into a van, on his way to the, uh, to the venue, he called his wife, and he said, honey, you're not going to believe this. We hit a deer with the airplane. He says there was an odd silence on the phone, and then his wife said, was it on the ground? He said, nope, Santa Claus was just making one last trip in June. Here's your sign. I'm talking about two different signs this morning, but the point is that the theological signs ought to be as obvious to us as the comedic ones. Truth is ever before us. Christmas always around us. And as we receive the Christian story, Christmas, always with us, as we hear it in our own historical and cultural context, we continue to interpret the story. We continue to interpret the story so that it continues to point us to God. What signs do you see around you? Look. The Lord will give you a sign. I believe that. The world is changing. It is changing faster than it has ever changed before. And for many people, it's just passing God by. God no longer works in our modern world, is no longer needed with our scientific understandings, or maybe, maybe it's just the image of God The idea of God that most people hear, maybe that's what doesn't work anymore. It's what my new book is all about. How do we think about God in a modern world? The world is changing. Our idea of God must change too. And it is. Last week, someone shared with me an article from the Washington Post entitled Church for Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Church for Nuns, anti-dogmatic spiritual collectives emerge across the United States. The category called nuns, those with no religious identity, is increasing. The nuns is the fastest growing category of Americans in recent polling data. The story in the Post featured three spiritual collectives Formerly known as Christian churches, two of the three were Baptists, whose pastors and people believe the old dogmatic notions of God and church no longer work, but they are committed to the sense of the divine among us, that sense that we continue to call God, and they are committed to the power of a people gathered around that spiritual conviction. In an increasingly secular world, with the decline of the traditional Christian church accelerating, look, here's your sign. New gatherings, collectives, churches by another name, in another shape, with broader understandings of God, a more inclusive picture of the world, one that makes room for the science that welcomes all one which demands that love shape our belief rather than dogma shaping whom and how we will love, these new gatherings will become more and more. The world is changing. Church is changing. Our understanding of God is changing. In Charlotte, North Carolina, I hope and pray the Park Road Baptist Church will always be a place that keeps its ear to the ground and keeps its eye on the culture, that keeps its heart with the people. that we can always receive and interpret and translate for our culture so we can always see the signs of God all around us. I want us to be the love of God through the way of Jesus for this community. I want us to be a church, a church where people can see us and say, look, here's your sign. May it be so. Amen.
2: James Smith has said that the essential quality of human beings, the thing that makes us human, is that we're lovers. It's not reason... It's not creativity, it's not group identity, it's love. I think he's right. Grief and love intersect because grief is what happens when the one we love is gone, beyond our reach. The great philosophers at Marvel Studios have said that grief is love persevering. I think they're right too. Advent is about Emmanuel, God with us, not God with me, not God with you, God with us. Love is that interaction between beings when one desires the good of the other and delights in their existence. Love is from God, and we see it in loving relationships, in the interactions of our life. Love is like the whole point of it all. And that's what makes grief and loss so profound, so meaningful, so painful. Love has the fragility of chickadee hope and the stubbornness of realistic peace. Love has the absurdity of authentic joy. Love never fails, says Paul. Love is stronger than death, says Solomon. I guess they're right too. Would you pray with me? God of hope, peace, joy, and love, grant us today the peace to embrace grief, to recognize it as the result of deep love, which is not overcome by mere death. Let the reality that you are with all of us, weaving the universe together in your own love, give us hope that we remain united somehow with those we grieve. Give us the joy that can embrace each day for what it is. Knowing that the one who endured crucifixion and birth's resurrection is holding all of all of us, even now. Give us the love to live in the world as though everyone is the person we miss. Amen.